Lloyd at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. If you've been fighting a losing battle against losing weight by following the advice you get from diet peddlers, the news media, and food manufacturers, you're not alone. Robert J. Davis, who runs the HealthySkeptic.com website, argues in his latest book that it isn't your fault. His book, Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat, and The Truth About What Really Works, is published by Everwell Books and brings Robert Davis to our show now. And um, if you have any questions for Mr. Davis, we invite you to give us a call here at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Mr. Davis, welcome to our show. I am here, Leonard. In your first chapter, which is headed, Pick Your Villain, you state that there's no single best diet for everyone. Um, why is that? Is it, is it because our genetic makeups are different? Well, you know, it, there are a number of reasons. Yes, that's certainly uh, a factor that we're all different. And many of these diets are one-size-fits-all diets that you need to eat a particular combination of foods, restrict certain foods, eat certain foods, and you're guaranteed uh, to lose weight. And obviously, it's not that simple. So certainly, that's a factor. But I think the problem is that many of the diets are just simply misguided. Um, That is to say that they rely on principles that are not supported by science. In many cases, they ban certain foods or certain groups of foods and say that that will be the solution to weight control, when in fact we know from science, looking at the science, that it's far more complicated than uh, banning certain villains. Um, that weight, weight regulation is a complex phenomenon that involves a number of factors, as you mentioned, genetic, uh, uh, physiological, hormonal, other, uh, certainly environmental, and all of those factors need to be taken into account if we're going to come up with a strategy that's going to be successful. Well, we receive a lot of advice on how to shed unwanted pounds, avoid fatty foods, acidic foods, cooked foods, gluten, legumes, animal products. We should exercise more, eat earlier, skip meals, drink more water, count calories, cut carbs, sip cider vinegar, (laughs) take a pill, and avoid foods that our ancestors didn't eat. Have I left anything out? Yeah, that's that's a that's that's a long list, mm. and certainly we could continue uh, adding uh, items to that list. So there's a long list, and that's the problem, Leonard. I mean, you know, we hear so much conflicting, confusing advice, and the this advice shifts over time, right? Because for decades during the 70s and 80s, we heard don't eat fat. Fat is what makes you fat, so don't eat fat. And millions of people complied. They tried. They cut back on fat. The food companies churned out all kinds of fat-free, low-fat products, Snackwell's cookies, for those that can remember, being sort of the emblem, uh, emblematic food of the era. And what happened? Not only did we not lose weight, we got fatter. And on top of that, there was an epidemic of diabetes. And so we, from there, we shifted to uh, cutting out carbohydrates, what I call the Atkins era. So, car- so we went from seeing fat as the enemy to seeing carbs as the enemy, carbohydrates. And so then the fixation was on cutting out carbs. And so we, we've continued since then to focus on various things, whether it's sugar, whether it is uh, high fructose corn syrup, uh, and some of the other things you mentioned, the paleo diet, which cuts out foods our ancestors uh, didn't eat and so forth. So the list goes on and on. But the problem is that, um, that, that again, none of these specific approaches has been shown to be the, the definitive way to lose weight. And on top of that, it's very confusing because there's so many of these things that are competing for our attention. And you report that you were an overweight child and that in an effort to help you slim down, your mother instructed you to forego bread because right. she'd learned that starchy foods are the main culprits when it comes to weight. Did you follow her advice and did it help? <laughs> well, I did so in her in front of her in her presence. I remember going to McDonald's and being upset as a child because I had to take the buns off of my hamburgers. <laughs> and uh, and and so, yes, I did. It, it turned out that it probably didn't make much difference. I just happened to grow and got thinner as I grew. But in my point in telling that story is that at the time, that's what my mother believed. Had I come along later, she might have said I needed to cut out the sodas I was drinking when I went to McDonald's or, the or burger. I need to cut out the fries or the burger or the hamburger. Mm. Right. So so the, the, it's all a function of what she learned at the time she learned it. But somebody else would have might have learned some other rule and cut out a different portion of my McDonald's meal. But the point is, the problem wasn't necessarily one component of that meal. It was the overall meal. It was the 
processed foods. It was the hamburgers and French fries together and the milkshake and the soda. It's not to say those are poisonous or toxic foods, but it is to say when we eat too many of those kinds of foods overall, that contributes to weight gain, that contributes to obesity. Do they all work for a while and then stop working? Exactly. So the the truth is that just about any diet uh, can work in the short term. Uh, It can help kickstart your efforts. But the problem, of course, is that diets for most of us are, by definition, short-term endeavors, whether we cut out carbs, whether we do intermittent fasting, whether we go on keto, whether we cut out fat, whatever it is, it's likely to be a short-term endeavor because most of these diets are not sustainable in the long run. And so, the, and, and the, 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 sadly, it's, the statistics show that, that almost, nearly everybody ends up regaining weight once they lose weight. Some people all the weight, if not more than they lost. So the challenge is what kind of eating pattern uh, is going to be sustainable in the long run. That's really the key here, just because just about any diet can help us lose weight over several months. Could some of them inflict physical harm? Yes, and that's certainly something that's often lost in the consideration of these various diets. We know, for example, the keto diet, which let's take that, which is an extremely low carb diet, which many people swear by and has been shown to help in the short term. The problem, for example, with a keto diet for some people is that it cuts out important nutrients so that if people do not eat whole grains, which are banned uh, by the keto diet, or they don't eat uh, uh, fruits, most of which are banned. They don't eat certain foods that are important for overall nutrition. They can end up with a deficiency of fiber of certain nutrients. Now, that's not to say the keto diet always results in that, but it is to say that that's certainly the potential. So I think it's important as people are considering this or any other diet to think about, are there potential downsides for my health uh, with regard to this eating pattern? You write that, I'm quoting, it's human nature to gravitate toward good versus evil explanations for complex problems. We see the same phenomenon in other areas of life, including politics. But in the case of uh, eating food, how is uh, it a good versus evil phenomenon? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, we, we see this so often in diets, that diets are about banning quote, evil or toxic or bad foods, the foods that are, are causing whatever problem. It like is in fruit? Case. That's outrageous. Well, but there are diets that ban fruits or that ban bananas. I know plenty of people that ask me all the time, should I eat bananas? I heard that they're fattening or I heard that certain uh, sugary fruits are bad for me. I shouldn't eat them. And so we see uh, diets that ban all kinds of foods that most of us would have previously considered beneficial but that they're on the, uh, you know, the, the, the no-no list. We shouldn't eat them because they're bad for us. And so part of what I try to do is help people understand that that kind of thinking not only is in the long run ineffective, but it also can lead to problems, as I mentioned earlier. So I think this, this whole way of thinking, this paradigm of thinking in terms of bad foods, foods we should avoid, is something that is not going to be helpful. On the flip side of that, though, is also the idea that good foods, quote, uh, uh, you know, f- uh, weight loss promoting foods are going to be magical in some way. So that is to say, if you eat avocados, if you eat grapefruits, if you eat chili peppers, if you drink apple cider vinegar, we have a number of foods that are often promoted through the media as being weight friendly. So that the the impression we get is if we eat these foods, then we'll lose weight, then we'll burn fat. And again, it's not nearly that simple. Those foods can be part of a, of a weight-friendly and healthful diet. Certainly avocados and grapefruit and other foods can be part of a good diet, but that's different than saying that these foods have some kind of magical ability to help melt away pounds. And that's an important distinction that is often lost in the way that these foods are portrayed through social media and by food companies. I always thought avocados would make you a little fatter. No? Well, well, they're, they're certainly they're, they're relatively high in fat and yeah. calories, but they contain g- the good kind of fat, that's monounsaturated fat, which is heart healthy, and also they can help fill us up. So in that sense, they can be part of a, of a good diet, of a weight-friendly diet, but again, um, they're often portrayed in the media as some kind of magical food for weight loss, which they're not. I want to remind our listeners that they can join the conversation. Our number here is 212-209-2877. You have uh, laid out your book with each of its eight chapters representing a main theme like the calorie fallacy or exercise illusions. And each chapter has four main components. 
a few myth or truth arguments, a short story about a person's personal journey surrounding the myths being discussed, supporting argument around the discussion, discuss myth or truth, and your thoughts on what to do and your recommendations. And you found that pretty much all of the different approaches had positives and negatives? Yes, and what I tried to do in this book is I tried to to take my background as both a health journalist and somebody with training in public health and epidemiology and look at the studies as thoroughly and honestly and objectively as I can to lay out what's true, what's not true, and what's somewhere in between and help readers make more informed decisions for themselves. As I see it, my job is not to tell people what to do because that's something each individual has to decide for himself or herself. But what I do try to do is to lay out the information so that people can make more informed decisions. Because as we said, there's so much conflicting information, so much confusing information that it becomes overwhelming to try to figure out what the right thing is to do. So what I've tried to do here is to look to the science, lay it out, and what I hope is an understandable way under each of these categories to help people figure out what's going to be best for them. What about all the supplements and meal plans? Yeah, well, supplements, that's, a, that, you know, we spend billions of dollars a year in the United States on supplements, dietary supplements for weight loss. And so um, what I found overall is that dietary supplements for weight loss, um, there's very little evidence that any of them are effective or have much measurable uh, impact on weight. Now, that's not to say I'm against supplements. There are plenty of dietary supplements that can be beneficial for certain specific conditions, things ranging from fish oil to certain vitamins can be beneficial for certain conditions. But when it comes to weight, unfortunately, most of the supplements um, have little or no science behind them. And on top of that, um, some have the potential to cause harm. There's, there's some evidence in the literature that certain ones can cause harm. So I think people need to be very careful before turning to supplements um, and, and to remember that these are only loosely regulated so that just because it says it can help you lose weight, there's typically no, uh, there's no uh, evidence for that it's because supplements are not regulated the same way as pharmaceuticals. So manufacturers don't have to prove that they're either safe or effective before marketing them. So again, consumers need to be aware of this and be very, very cautious uh, when looking to supplements to help them lose weight. Have you noticed that some of the pharmaceutical ads on TV list weight loss as a side effect, uh, supposedly a negative, but I suspect that they're using it to, to sell the product? Well, and you know, that's an interesting point because some of the medications, including one that was just recently approved for weight loss, specifically for weight loss, these are prescription drugs, um, were previously approved for other things. For example, there are two on the market that are approved for diabetes, but uh, uh, it was found that they also, as you suggest, result in weight loss. And so these products have been essentially rebranded and repackaged and gotten approval from the FDA to be specifically aimed at weight loss. And so, yes, that, that, that has been sort of a, 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 a reason that these drugs, because they have that side effect, have been packaged for that reason. I think it remains to be seen whether some of these medications are going to be long-term solutions. The, we, there's a long history of medications being approved for weight loss uh, and then later found to cause side effects that are dangerous, and those drugs were withdrawn from the market. So we'll see if these drugs, uh, the, these newer drugs, can be uh, something that will last a long time. But I do think uh, consumers need to be aware of that also when deciding whether to take prescription medications and talk about that with their doctors, weighing the, the benefits and potential risks. Can some beneficial medications cause weight gain? Yes. So I talk about that in the book. There are medications, uh, a number of medications um, that can cause, including antidepressants, including certain blood pressure medications, um, antihistamines, certain diabetes medicines, st uh, steroids such as prednisone. So yes, certain medications can result in weight gain. And that's an important point because if people are experiencing weight gain and are on certain medications, it's a good idea, idea to talk to a pharmacist or a healthcare provider to see if perhaps those medications are contributing to weight gain and if there's some alternative. And sometimes within a category, not every drug in that category, say um, uh, antidepressants, will cause weight gain. So perhaps a person can work with their doctor to find another drug in that category that's not going to contribute to weight gain. You're listening to Leonard Lopin at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Robert J. Davis, 
whose latest book is Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. It's published by Everwell Books. And we are taking calls here at uh, 212-209-2877. Let's go to a call. Hi, BAI, you're on the air. Yes, hi, my name's David. Hi, David. Um, Yes, I'd like to make a point about the methodology that's very full. Well, David, could you speak up just a little more? You're kind of soft. Yeah. I'd like to point out the methodology, methodology flaws in self-report nutritional studies. Um, there's so many people that claim to eat a certain way, but when they go home or they're not being monitored, they eat totally different things. So these are self-report. People don't want to admit, like the... 2016, who they're going to vote for, what they really eat. And the reality is, from my experience, you know, when I was very strict and I eliminated all starches and I just had fish, meat, and chicken and a lot of fat, a lot of fat, avocados, olive oils, greens, which was very nutritional. I I wasn't um, deficient in any type of vitamin or mineral. Um, I lost weight over, you know, if I was 100% consistent with taking a um, glucose monitor that me- measured my keto status, and it lasted for eight months when I was very strict. I had to add starch and carbohydrates because I was losing weight too quickly, no matter how much fat, no matter how much, you know, I can't eat that much meat, chicken, or fish, but you're wrong. Okay, well, That's let's bring all. Robert Davis in on this. Hi, what, what is your response to this? Well, a couple things. Uh, David, first of all, you make an excellent point when it comes to the way studies are conducted. These so-called observational studies that have people report what they eat, sometimes just one point in time, sometimes uh, you know repeatedly, um, are subject to error. You're right, because people either may uh, not want to admit what they ate or they may not remember. You know, we, you ask any of us what we ate last week or we even we ate for breakfast this morning and we may not remember. Uh, exactly what so so you're absolutely right that these are prone to error but i I will say what's important is when when you're looking at science you have to look at what's called what scientists call the totality of the evidence which is what i try to do so it's not just studies like that you can only look there are studies where you take people and you put them in a lab and you restrict all their intake and the studies that have done that have shown when you close them up for weeks and weeks it's very expensive the facts are that starch, starch has no nutritional value. It's just caloric value. You don't know what you're talking about. Look at the, look at the studies where they take people and they seclude them in Rockefeller. Look at all the studies where they restrict any diet. They have, they have taken the people in the Rockefeller Center University in Upper Manhattan. It was on 60 Minutes. They, they give them McDonald's, high-fat you know, meals, and monitor for days and days. And they see the damage. So there aren't, there's no benefit of eating bread. There's no benefit of eating potato chips or potatoes or starch or grains. It's nonsense. You're, you're contributing to more. You're contributing to more disinformation. And are you funded by any of the uh, nutritional or, or um, food industry? Yeah, okay. Robert Davis, you want to respond? Well, well that's a fair question. The answer is no, I am not. I have spent my career... Um, uh, not funded by anybody at all. I'm completely independent. And my complete mission here is to look at the science as objectively as I can. And let me say just in response, David, to your point there, um, yes, you can point to studies saying, concluding what you're concluding, where they actually look at people in laboratory. But I can also, there are also studies which actually compare diet. There's one called Diet Fits. There are others that compare different kinds of diets, the diet you're describing with a low carb compared to low fat other diets. And again, what they find over time in the vast majority of studies that are controlled is that in the long run, meaning a year or longer, there's no difference with regard to weight loss. Now, we can talk about other parameters that are measured with regard to blood sugar. You're talking about cholesterol, other factors. But if we're talking here just about weight loss, over time, which is what matters, over time, we're talking a year or longer, a number of studies that have been controlled find there's not a difference. So I think, again, I'm not, look, and I'm not saying 
I'm not telling you that your diet is wrong or that you shouldn't do it. That's not my role here, and I'm not trying to denigrate that diet. If it works for you, you should keep doing it. That's fantastic, and I know it works for other people. My point here, though, is to tell people that there are different paths, paths to the same destination and that the diet that works for you is not mm. necessarily the diet for everybody, and the science is more complicated than we're led to believe that that is the only diet or the best diet to get to successful weight loss. And you write that nutrition researchers, obesity experts, and government agencies bear some responsibility for leading us astray by overstating the certainty of the science when it comes to certain culprits. I do, because I think that there's what, what uh, is called in psychology an allegiance bias that crops up among not only dieters, but also among experts. So there are experts that swear by either the approach that David's talking about or a low, there are others that swear by a low-fat approach. There are others that swear by cutting out all sugar. So you get different people, different uh, experts uh, in different camps, and they will conduct research to try to, try to prove their point and then ignore or dis disregard evidence that shows that it's not necessarily the only or the best approach. So we see this kind of allegiance bias crop up not only among dieters who say this has worked for me and that everybody needs to do this, but we see it also among experts who are essentially cheerleaders for a particular approach whether it's keto or low fat or something else. And again, that leads us astray into getting into following whatever leader it is who is a cheerleader and a zealot for a particular approach. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yeah, hi. Speak up, please. Hi. Uh, how about intermittent, intermittent fasting? That's a great question. So intermittent fasting has been another very popular approach. And again, if you look at the studies overall, and these include control studies, what we see is that intermittent fasting can result and does result for people in weight loss, at least over the short term. But here's, here's the, the important point. It's not necessarily more effective at uh, leading to weight loss than a reduced calorie diet, number one. And number two, um, some evidence at least suggests that it may result in intermittent fasting approach may result in more uh, loss of muscle mass, lean mass, than a restricted calorie diet. And Aren't that's you also good. denying yourself vitamins and other nutrients by not eating? Well, potentially. It, it really depends on how you structure it, because there are different ways to do intermittent fasting. So you can have a diet where you, uh, which many people do these days, which is restricted feeding. So you uh, limit your eating to certain hours of the day, maybe a, a certain window during the day. You, but there are other ways to do it. You can have the every other day, essentially, you fast, you eat only 500 calories or so, and you eat normally every other day. Or a, it's a called the 5-2 diet. Two days a week, you do restricted eating uh, 500 calories or so. The other days, you eat normally. So it all depends on what you eat during those days when you're eating normally. Uh, or those hours when you're eating normally if you get enough nutrients. So, so yes, there is certainly that potential uh, if, if you're going to end up overall reducing uh, the nutrients you get in your diet. But I think that can be, if people pay attention to getting enough, they can certainly overcome that. But to finish my earlier point about uh, reducing muscle mass, that's it, crucial. You don't want to diet. We don't want our, we, we want a weight loss diet to reduce fat. We don't want it to reduce muscle, lean tissue, because um, for two reasons. First of all, uh, muscle burns more calories than fat does. So we want to maximize our, uh, our muscle uh, and tissue. And number two, um, uh, we need that muscle as we get older because that, that muscle mass is what keeps us from getting frail and being able to continue with everyday activities as we age. So, so again, the, the bottom line with intermittent fasting is it's something that people swear by. It works for many people. If it works for you, that's great. But I think people need to be uh, cautious when going in not to think of this as some kind of magical approach that's going to be better than anything else and, and work miracles for you because um, too often what happens, I find, is that people hear all these glowing things through the media, through social media, through their friends. They try it. It doesn't work for them. Then they feel like failures. And, you know, this is a big part of this whole story is how the, this dieting craze and all these diets that don't work lead people, when they don't work, to blame themselves. Instead of blaming the diets, they blame mm -hmm. themselves. And that, that, that further that exacerbates. That further exacerbates their feelings of um, self-blame and failure and so forth and, 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 and self-stigma. So I think that we need to be careful when looking at these diets and going with our eyes wide open. If someone's going to try an intermittent fasting diet to understand what the limitations potentially are 
and to know that if it doesn't work for them, that's okay. It doesn't mean that they particularly, that, that they failed. It just means the diet has failed. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, speaking of muscle mass, is diet more important than exercise or vice versa? So I think it depends for certainly when it comes to weight loss, diet is more important. You know, we hear all the time, one of the ideas we, ha we hear all the time is that exercise, uh, you know, eat, eat less, exercise, move more, E-L-M-M, -M, eat less, move more. That is the solution. That is the key formula when it comes to uh, weight loss. And I like to say that E-L-M-M, -M, Elm, Elm Street is a dead end. Because for so many people, they try hard, they eat less, they also ramp up their exercise, and they find that it doesn't work. And, and one of the reasons that exercise uh, doesn't work is it just simply doesn't burn that many calories. That is the kind of exercise most of us do, whether it's going for a walk, taking a yoga class, so forth. Th those it doesn't really, it burns very few calories, far fewer than you might expect. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't exercise. I'm a huge proponent of exercise. I think it's the closest thing we have to a fountain of youth. Um, it, is, it, it can do everything from reduce your risk of heart disease and cancer to improve your mood, improve your thinking, uh, reduce depression. It, the list goes on and on and on. So I think everyone should exercise regardless of your weight. But I think it's a mistake when we look to it to help us lose weight because too often it doesn't, uh, it doesn't succeed at that. And I think when, when people go into an exercise program expecting it uh, to for them to lose weight, to help them lose weight, and it doesn't do that, too often people give up on exercise because they have unrealistic expectations about what it can do. You say now, that we should be aware of any plan that includes the word secrets or shortcuts. There are no secrets in this area? Unfortunately not. I wish there were. And too often we see that in news headlines and, and all the rest and, and uh, you know, promotions for various diets or diet pills. Um, I wish there were. And certainly uh, I would be the first to say if I found one. But uh, the sad truth is there are no shortcuts or no secrets um, when it comes to this. Now, many of the plans involve considerable monetary investment. Companies like Noom and Jenny Craig advertise a lot on TV. Are, have you checked out their plans? Well, I, I, you know, I would say that some are certainly great. And, and Noom, for example, and again, I'm not paid by Noom, so I'm not in any way uh, here to shill for them. But I do think Noom has elements. For those not familiar with Noom, it involves an app, and it involves not only helping you with your, what you eat, coaching you what you eat and your physical activity, but it also uh, tackles an important component of this, which is the behavioral aspect. And that is to say, what are your impediments? What, what trips you up? And we all, anybody trying to lose weight knows that there are all kinds of things that derail us, whether it's emotional eating, whether it's everyday life, um, all kinds of things get in the way. And so what Noom recognizes is weight control is not just about what you eat. It's also about your mindset. It's also about your lifestyle. It's also about everyday things in your life that may conflict with your ability to stick with a program. And so what Noom does is it's a comprehensive program that, as I understand, that helps you deal with all those aspects. And I think any program uh, that does that is potentially a good thing. So I think when we think about weight control and when I talk about what works, one of the things I focus on is trying to take a comprehensive approach. And I believe that Noom does that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Davis, whose latest book is Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. It's published by Everwell Books. You open uh, your book with the story of Horace Fletcher. Why there? That's 1898? Was, <laughs> is that when uh, weight loss became a craze? Well, I think weight loss was a craze, uh, or it has been in eras before that. But I, I start with that story, and I'll just briefly uh, tell the listeners what that story is. A guy named Horace Fletcher uh, in the late uh, 1800s was a, a wealthy man who uh, was overweight, and he tried different ways to lose weight, couldn't. And finally, he settled on something that worked for him, and that was chewing his food 
sometimes hundreds or thousands of times until it completely liquefied and disappeared. And he found that this uh, incessant chewing helped him lose, uh, I think it was like 40 pounds and seven inches off his waist. And he, he was a wealthy man. And so he went about publicizing uh, this weight loss through press interviews and public demonstrations. And he would give demonstrations of his vigor uh, for after having lost all this weight and because of the chewing. And this became a fad. It became known as Fletcherism after him. And so <laughs> people uh, followed this fad and, and chewed their food. And people even had uh, parties where they chewed their food hundreds of times. Now, I, now I can't imagine. This certainly must have made meals uh, quite difficult and monotonous. I can't imagine what that was like. But well, it slowed uh, it lasted, things down, didn't it? Would yes. that be a good thing? Right. Well, so what it did was it made people probably eat more slowly and they consume fewer calories, and that's likely why it worked. But I, I use that as just one example of a lot of the crazy fads we've seen uh, throughout the decades and the last few centuries. And so I started with that because I think it's a particularly interesting and kind of crazy one. But I talk about other crazy things that have come along. And, and, I, and what I do is I try to compare it to what we're facing now. And that even though we think we're more sophisticated and that we have uh, better science when, when it comes to weight loss, the truth is that a number of the things I point out are in some ways just as crazy and have uh, equally little evidence behind them. But yet they're portrayed through the news media and through social media and through by various companies as being proven ways, quote unquote, proven ways to lose weight when in fact they're not. And you list 21 myths or truths. What are the most common ones? You know, one certainly is that this idea that eat less, move more elm is the secret to weight loss. If only that the whole secret is that you cut calories, exercise more and you'll lose weight. That's kind of sort of the standard advice we've heard for, you know, decades. And I would say that's the biggest myth of all, because it's just simple. It's just not that simple. And it involves not only how many calories we consume, but what we eat, the composition of our diets. As I said, exercise helps, doesn't help us necessarily lose weight. It can help, though, with preventing weight regain or keeping us from gaining weight in the first place. But it's not that effective at helping us lose weight. So certainly that whole idea of Elm, eat less, move more, is, is I think, the biggest myth of all. Um, I think the idea we touched on earlier, that specific foods are responsible for weight gain if only we cut those foods out. Again, I think that's a gr gross oversimplification. Certainly, it works for certain people, as it did for the caller David and other people if you, if you cut out a certain category of foods. But I think over the long run, there's not evidence that cutting out a specific kind of food is going to be either effective or sustainable for most people. And then I think there's, there's sort of a related issue here, and I touched on this earlier, and that is the idea that when it doesn't work for you, when a diet doesn't work for you, it's your fault. And so one of the things, you know, I've been reporting as a journalist on this issue for so many years, but one of the things I gained a lot of greater insight into in writing this book was the people I talked to and learning about their struggles um, and, and learning how this, these failures, or what they perceive as their failures to lose weight by following diet after diet after diet and then regaining the weight or gaining even more weight, results in, in a sense of self-blame and, and, and failure and shame and, and how that harms their emotional health and their self-esteem. And so I, I just I think that that's such an important point here, this myth that if you don't succeed, it's your fault, something you did wrong. It's some kind of failure of diligence or willpower or something else on your part. The, the truth is that weight regulation is highly complicated, as we said, and that many of the diets that are pushed just simply are not effective. That's the problem. Uh, it's not necessarily that people are failures. And, and, and I think this idea that people um, take in that there's something wrong with them is, is perhaps the biggest problem of all. I've had the opposite experience over the last five years or so. I've lost a lot of weight without doing anything to achieve that. I don't, I'm still not sure why, although I suspect I'm uh, not as hungry as I used to be. And maybe I'm not eating as, at fancy restaurants anymore. But... Um, this is it's been a bit of a mystery to me, and I suspect other people have had the same experience. Well, I think that, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to explain how our bodies work. And that's part of the issue here is that our bodies work in very complex ways. Um, but I do think that the sometimes um, when people don't realize what they're doing is perhaps they're just uh, unintentionally changing their eating patterns because the solution long term to weight control is focusing on the overall quality of your diet and eating more of a plant-based whole foods diet. And that is to say lots of fruits, 
vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds, uh, lean meats, and cutting back. Wait, things that are forbidden in some of these diets. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Things that are forbidden in some of the diets, but those are part of an overall healthful diet. And the key, Leonard, is that those are foods that are healthful for you and that are going to help fill you up. And that's what's crucial here, because when we eat a lot of processed foods, what happens is that we're hungry again shortly after eating them. When you eat chips and drink soda and eat fries and eat other foods like that, you know, sweets, you're going to be hungry shortly after eating those. So the kinds of foods I just described, they're more likely to fill you up, more likely to fill you up in a healthy way to keep you healthy so that you're not going to be as hungry and you're not going to eat as much. I think that's that's one of the main reasons um, that these diets uh, that when I say diet, it's a way of eating. I don't like using the word diet because that implies a short term, but that kind of eating pattern is going to be more effective. So that sometimes if people switch to that way of eating or try to go in that direction for their health, they'll find that also they may be losing weight, even if that wasn't their intention. We'll be taking another call in just a moment, but I did want to deal with one other thing from the book. You provide weight control strategies that research shows actually work. And among you of what to do's are minimize highly processed foods, make gradual changes. It takes time to adjust and try to keep after dinner eating to a minimum. That all seems very sensible. Yeah, and so what I like to say is it's not, these are not sort of, the the truth is not uh, surprising or earth shattering. Unfortunately though, we're all looking for it. I understand it, I am too. We're all looking for something we've never heard of, some kind of secret, some kind of magical solution. And the answers are right in front of our eyes. Their answers are things that most of us know. It's just that we have to focus on those and not get distracted by all these shiny objects around us all these people promising that if we do certain things, they'll work, when in fact, there's not scientific evidence for those other approaches. Our number here is 212-209-2877. If you want to join this, this conversation with Robert J. Davis, author of Supersize Lies, let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Is that me? It's you. Okay. And actually, I'm an old BAI alumni. I was a volunteer engineer when BAI was at 30 East 39th Street. Oh, gee, I did one show there many years ago. Long time ago. Listen, I have a, and this follows right on from your comment about staying on diets. I have a, a, a question about a very specific diet that I have been on and I can, and successfully, but I can't get anybody else to stay on it. It's called the Ornish Diet. I had a triple bypass in 1996 when I weighed 180 pounds. The doctor told me, uh, read this book. And so I've been at 155 pounds since then. I have a BMI of 22, which is good, and an A1C of 5.4. And I've tried to get lots of friends to go on to this diet, and they can do it for about a week or two. The cardiologist says that it works, but nobody can keep up with it. They say that it's just too much trouble. So... I'll take your answer off the air, but I'd be interested in your comments about how you get people to stay to these very strict regimens. Thank you. Okay. Do you, well, are you aware you. of that diet? Yes, that's the Ornish diet, Dr. Dean Ornish, who is the champion of the very low-fat diet. And um, that diet, again, it goes way back to the 1970s. Uh, Dean Ornish has been pushing that diet since then. And so there are proven benefits to a very low-fat diet when it comes to heart health. And so, as the caller says, um, that is there, there's good evidence that it can help. Now, the question is, again, though, is that the best diet for weight loss? Now, certainly it can result in weight loss, as can the, the caller previously, David, who, who was advocate of just the opposite of that in many ways, which was a low-carb diet. Um, so both can work toward weight loss. The question, though, is the caller says, is that sustainable for people? Can people stay on a very low-fat diet for an extended period? Some people can, as the caller can, but most of us cannot because that's a hard diet to follow as well because you're cutting out. Um, it's a very, very low-fat diet down to, I believe, 20% fat up from calories or lower, which means cutting out a number of foods that most of us eat or, or eating very little of those. And so and I would I have to that, forego ice cream, wouldn't I? Well, certainly it would have to be kept to a, 
a bare minimum. Um, and, and any other foods you think of that contain any fat at all. Now, that diet has been modified over the years to include more good fat. So it can include some, I believe, nuts and seeds, I believe. But in general, it's cutting out fat from your diet, all, all fat. So that's a very hard thing to do. And so, again, the, the key issue with any of these diets is when it comes to weight loss is how sustainable is it? And that, in the end, is the problem for most of us, whether it's cutting out fat or carbs or anything else, is that in the long run, uh, for most of us, we can't keep it going. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org is Robert J. Davis, who is also known as the healthy skeptic. Um, he, uh, you, you, We'll talk about some of the other things that you do a little later, uh, but right now we're going to be taking some more calls. His book is Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. It is published by Everwell Books. And let's take another call. BAI, you are on the air. Yeah, I just uh, had a couple comments. Uh, I uh, worked behind a desk for 25 years. I would ended up being around 180 pounds. Uh, I'd eat half the meal at the restaurant. I went to the gym and all this stuff. Not, you know, could, couldn't ever really budge the needle. Uh, I uh, ended up working in construction, and uh, in the course of maybe six weeks or something, uh, totally transformed uh, because I was carrying, you know, two two sheets of wall barred up three flights of stairs and uh, just constantly active, you know, for eight, ten hours a day. And I didn't change my diet. The one thing I did was I'm not going to eat more food. Um, and I kept eating at McDonald's. I'd get the $3, you know, lunch deal at the time. Uh, and the, the pounds just melted away and the, the, the fat turned into muscle. I had uh, veins in my arms and all this kind. I went from being a, what do you call it, an ectomorph to an, a, a mesomorph or something. Um, so wait, wait the, uh, Mr. Davis, uh, you also ate at McDonald's. Should McDonald's be uh, <laughs> monitoring this and running ads saying... <laughs> Well, perhaps I never thought of McDonald's as a place where you ate healthy food. Well, let me just slip in my one last comment, which is you've just mentioned this thing about you do this and that and, you know, you don't feel hungry. I think that's the big mistake that people make is that you should make hunger your friend. When you feel that you're hungry, it's tell yourself, oh, my body is converting to uh, burning fat now. Hmm. So let's see how long I can keep this going. And I find, you know, having just like a cup of coffee and a piece of toast for breakfast or maybe just a cup of coffee uh, with cream in it, by the way. I've used cream ever since I started with cream in my coffee. My cholesterol has gone down. The latest thing was 163, which I I find a little. Well, it all depends believe, on how tall you are and uh, how you know, how big, you know, what, well, what your I, bones I, I, are like. Drinking. 163 might be uh, very light for one person and a little heavy for somebody else. Uh, no, no, I mean 163, the uh, uh, cholesterol. Hmm. Anyway, you, you yeah, want anyway, to respond? Yeah, anyway, your friend. That's, that's my advice. Thanks. Yeah, well, well, a couple points. I would say, first of all, obviously the job you're doing, which is great, burned a lot of calories. I mean, it, it, it clearly burned more calories than you said you were going to the gym, correct? So it, it, it burned. So your job, you were very physically active and lifting and constantly moving. And so I think that if, if any of us could do exercise in that way, that is to say burn that many calories when we exercise, then exercise, going to the gym or doing other exercise could be more effective with weight loss as it was for you. The issue though is that most of us, if you're gonna go get on the treadmill or take a walk or do whatever exercise you typically do, it's not gonna burn nearly as many calories as it would if you're on a construction site all day you know, lifting things and moving and so forth all day. So I think that's a function. What you experienced was was obviously a function of the calories that you burned when you were on the job. And so if any of us are able to res uh, engage in an exercise program that is equivalent to that, you could certainly lose weight. And isn't age an, uh, a factor in all of that? Uh, no, no somebody question. over 70 isn't likely to be doing the kinds of things that the caller did. 
Well, well, you're right. So not only uh, is our ability to do that restricted, but also our ability to lose weight. So as we get older, it's harder to lose weight um, for various reasons because changes in our metabolism. So both of those factors certainly play a role when it comes to our age. Um, I would just say the other point with regard to hunger is that certainly, again, this is an individual difference. Certain people are able to be able to resist the urge to eat when they're hungry. But for most of us, we can resist for a short time, but it's much, much like the, the urge to go to sleep. We can resist that for some period of time, but eventually our biology is gonna win out and we're gonna go to sleep. Hmm. And so likewise with hunger, um, some more than others can resist that urge to eat and say, okay, I'm hungry, but I'm just not gonna give in, I'm not gonna eat. But sooner or later, for the vast majority of us, we, uh, we give in and we eat because bodies, our biology forces us to. So yes, everybody's different. Some people, and I know people who've lost weight by essentially just working through the hunger and being hungry all the time. But for most of us, that's not a sustainable strategy because sooner or later we're going to give in and not only eat, but maybe eat a lot, binge eat because we are, we are so hungry and we've denied ourselves for so long. So that's why I think for most people, at least um, trying to fight hunger is not a successful long-term strategy. Well, how relevant are things like where we are, who we're with, and what we're doing while we're having our meals? I think all those things can play a big role. And you know, Leonard, often we're not aware of those things. So that's why I think it's a good idea, and I recommend keeping a journal, a food diary, a food journal, and writing down not only what you eat, um, but those other factors, when you ate it, who you were with, how you felt when you were eating, were you celebrating, were you sad, uh, were you stressed? So, so I think all those factors can play a role in what we eat and how much we eat. And if we understand that, if we understand how those factors affect our eating patterns, then I think we can take action accordingly. So if we know, for example, that we tend to eat more junk food when we're stressed, or we tend to eat more when we're stressed, or we tend to eat uh, uh, more when we're with people at dinner, whatever it is, then I think we can, it, being aware of that is an important thing so that we can um, change or be, at least be aware of our behavior and try to change it. If we're not aware of that, then there's no chance we're ever going to change it. But if we are aware of it because we've written it down and tracked it, then I think that can be an effective strategy to successful weight control. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi, I'm on the air now. You're, it's you. Hi, um, I'm Jan, and uh, mainly two or three things. Um, I found that the water you drink is extremely important. Like people should drink filtered water because that has the oxygen in it. And I heard also to put a pinch of sea salt in it or a little bit of juice because that gives an electrolyte thing to the water. And also... People don't realize the reason vitamins don't work that well is because I pick up energies and the health food stores, the longer vitamins hang in the health store. I refrigerate everything. They get bad. And then even if you bring them home, half of the vitamins feel good and half feel bad. And what about blood types? And I can't stand to look at meat now. And I don't have any bread. What, well, what about vitamins, uh, Mr. Davis? Uh, are there certain vitamins that we should be taking every day, C and, and D? I think that varies from person to person. I think with regard to weight control, at least, there's not evidence that taking certain vitamins is going to uh, help with weight control. Certainly, I would say if you're on a very, very low-calorie diet, if you're on a vegan diet, then there's evidence that taking a multivitamin can be helpful to help make up for the nutrients you may not be getting. But with with regard to weight loss, I think that's really, there's no evidence. And w whether people should take certain vitamins really depends on their individual situation, whether they have a deficiency or well, not. The caller said that she drinks a lot of water. Yeah, water. That Let me talk about that. So I think there is some evidence with regard to water and weight. And that is that there's studies showing that if people drink water 30 minutes before they have a meal, they're going to be more full and they're going to eat less. And so there are several studies that suggest that can be an effective strategy. That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to chug water all day. You know, often we hear you need, everybody needs at least eight glasses of water and people Ugh. force themselves to drink all day. There's not evidence for that with regard to weight or health, but I do think drinking, there is evidence if you drink right before a meal, that may be helpful at helping fill you up and, 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 and so you'll eat less. We have very little time left, but I want to sneak another call in, but can you make it as quick as possible, please, caller? Yes, yes. Hello, Leonard. Yes, Can you hi. Hear me? 
Hi, Carol. Uh, thank you for this excellent program, sir. Um, I'm 75, and um, you mentioned about when you get older, it's definitely harder. Do you have any tips for um, older people and mm. eating and, and not walking? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's you're right, but I think that doesn't mean it's it's hopeless. It means just. Uh, several things. Number one is to redouble efforts to eat a healthful diet, an overall healthful diet, the kind we mentioned, but also, you're right, Leonard, to walk, to, to move in whatever way you can. Certainly that may be more uh, difficult as people age, but I think if it's walking, if it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it can be Pilates, different kinds of exercises that uh, you're able to do. But I think too often people, as they get older, become less active, and that becomes an issue at preventing weight gain. So I think moving your body in whatever way you can is crucial as you age. Now, you host the Healthy Skeptic video series, which dissects the, uh, the science behind popular health claims. Where can people access that? They can go to my uh, website, healthyskeptic.com, and I have a number of videos on there that, are, that dissect these, as you say, various claims, a number of the topics we've talked about today and others. Uh, healthyskeptic.com, short videos that uh, listeners can find there. And this is your fourth book. Uh, it's called Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works. Uh, people will also see you on, uh, well, you've been appeared on a lot of television shows. Um, so do you think people are listening? Well, um, I just I want to just put out information as honestly as I can. And I hope for those that are trying to figure things out that are open to the science and trying to uh, you know, and not necessarily have made up their minds about what's right and wrong or open to what the science says. I hope they will listen. Again, I'm not here to tell them what they should or shouldn't do or that it, one diet is the best way to go. But it is to say, I hope I can allow them to make more informed decisions and decisions that are going to be successful for them. And that's that's really my goal. here. And Robert J. Davis's book is called Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Really Works is published by Everwell Books. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I've really enjoyed it, Leonard. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Or you can also find links to past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to, to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content because WBAI is sponsored 100% by listener donations. Now, if you tune in regularly to to um, Leonard Lopate at Large or have just discovered our unique content, we need you to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to help keep this historic station on the air with a tax-deductible contribution. We are the only station in the New York Radio Dell that's completely listener-sponsored. And as... Um, uh, you, I'm sure you can understand WBI needs your help now more than ever in light of the difficulties of the past year. Uh, to everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, my great thanks. And uh, although we're off tomorrow, I hope that you can join us on Wednesday when writer and editor Ian Baruma will join us again to discuss his op-ed for Project Syndicate entitled The Colonial Trap. We'll see you then.